the elements are, are all in place. The mood is set, the ambiance, the lighting, the savory fragrances, the plated food, the deep intentionality, all saying, pay attention, pay attention. Don't forget, don't forget. Candles are glowing, flickering on the table. They're light catching on the cups of wine. Savory smells, sweet fragrances shroud the room. And memories and expectations swirl inside those who are there together. And then a young voice speaks. A question arises. Why is this night different from all other nights? Why is this night different from all other nights? Why indeed? And in fact, what night is this? Well, this is Passover night. This is the first of seven annual feasts that God has given his people to celebrate. And this question, why is this night different from all other nights, is a profoundly helpful question to help us understand what the Passover is all about, to understand this feast, and more so to see Jesus and to become more like him. Well, as this Passover dinner is underway, which is called the the Seder meal, which we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, one of the youngest members of that that company, of that party, or that, that family, will ask the host or the father of the home a question. And that question is simply this, why is this night different from all other nights? And then that's qualified with a few other questions. On all other nights, we eat leavened products and matzah, an unleavened bread. And on this night, only matzah. Why? On all other nights, we eat all vegetables. And on this night, only bitter herbs. That's weird. Why? On all other nights, we don't dip our food even once. And on this night, we dip twice. Why? And on all other nights, we eat sitting or reclining. And on this night, we only recline. What's that about? Why? Well, at this point, the father or the host of the meal tells the story. The story of of God's marvelous works. How he redeemed his people. And and as the story is told, the symbolic food is is eaten in time at at the appropriate time within the story. And so the story takes us back to the time of Abram. Out of the the chaotic sea of humanity and the many evils and broken edges of humanity, God calls Abraham out of an ancient Las Vegas or an ancient New York, a city called Ur. He calls him out and he says, go, go west to this land of promise that I have for you and, and I will go with you And I will be with you. And so Abram does. He trusts in faith. He goes. He travels to the promised land. And there God multiplies his family. His family grows. And this Abram becomes Abraham, the father of a multitude. And and over time his family continues to grow. But in time a famine comes. And his descendants, including Jacob and his sons and their families, well, they head to Egypt where there's food, where there's bread, where there's a family member who brings them in, a once-hated, once-enslaved dreamer named Joseph. And for a while, Egypt is 
a land of blessing. It's comfortable and it's good. Over the years, though, the family grows and grows and grows, flourishes and expands at an incredible rate. And at some point, the numbers become a threat to one of the pharaohs. And so Abraham's people become slaves. And in a terrible plan to control the population, this anxious, tyrannical pharaoh puts in play the killing of the, the male babies, of the baby boys, throwing them into the Nile. Well, in time, God comes to rescue his people through an agent of redemption, a man named Moses, one who lived between worlds, one who was one of those babies that was meant to be killed and thrown into the Nile, yet survived. And he grew up in an Egyptian home, Hebrew and Egyptian. But then he ended up living in the wilderness as a shepherd for years. And God called, comes to him and calls him to go. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let God's people, help me out, go. And Pharaoh is stubborn and he's stony and a series of divine judgments of plagues ensue because God is now judging Egypt and their false gods, each one an attack on one of the so-called gods of Egypt. And the last plague is a severe plague. It's a plague of death, a judgment that will bring death to each home, a judgment that's parallel to how this whole thing started out with Pharaoh killing the children, so it is in like kind. It is following that pattern. But Here's the thing about this plague. This isn't just going to land on the Egyptians. It's going to land on the Egyptians and the Hebrews. Everyone, everyone, this judgment will fall on all households. On all. On the palace, on the shack, the royal tyrant, the oppressed slave, the Egyptian, and the Jew. To every door will come the grim visitor of, of death. Yet, God makes a way. God provides a way through. He makes a way out, uh, passing over, a, a protection, a, a covering. And this brings us to the word where we get the word Passover. The word in Hebrew is, is Pesach. This is a fascinating word. It's a little bit of a, a mystery. It is a word that resembles and is linked to an Egyptian term for spreading wings over to protect. The spreading of wings over to protect. So you can think of a mother hen who will cover her chicks with her wings to protect them from a predator or a fire. To protect. Spreading of wings over to protect. That's fascinating. So then the question arises, well, how is this protection, this wing spreading going to happen now knowing that this death is going to come to every household? Well, God gives quite specific instructions. Now, before I read this bit again, please hear me on this. We're, we're not here talking about some, some historical curiosities. We're, what we're doing this morning is actually peering into crucial realities that affect our, our daily life and affect our destiny. And I pray that that comes to light as we work through some of this. So Exodus 12, verse 3, and then 5 through 6. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the month is called Nisan, uh, kind of like the car, but minus an S. Um, Nisan, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male year old. You may take it from the sheep and from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. 
when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Wow. Those are oddly specific instructions. A lamb as an agent of protection. Not only a, a lamb as an agent of protection, which seems odd in the first place, but a dead lamb. Why this? Why these very precise instructions? Well, a couple of things here. First, um, Nisan is the, the spring. Uh, it's a spring month, April, May, so it's right in there. The lamb is to be acquired and brought into the home on the 10th. There's not to be any blemish. Perfectly healthy, a mature animal. Um, not, a, not a newborn, but um, a mature, so a year in. Healthy, sound. Brought into the house on the 10th day and then killed on the 14th day at twilight as it approaches evening. Now, this is, this is something, because <laughs> if you read between the lines here, think about this. A little lamb living with the family for four-ish days or so. A little lamb living with your family and your kids for four days or so. Like, this gets personal real quick, right? This isn't an abstraction. This, this, is, uh, this is little fuzzy, or this is cuddly little Betsy, right? Or insert cute pet name here. You get to know this animal and be with this animal, this isn't just an act of cruelty on God's part. Um, we might be like, that's just, that's just cruel. That, that's, not what, that's not what's going on. This is, this is teaching the personal, relational, and costly nature of redemption. There is a personal, relational, and costly nature to redemption. And we're going to see that. So if you keep going, let's, let's do verse 7 and then verse 22 Pardon me, for sake of time, I had to pull some of these passages together instead of working through the entirety of chapter 12, um, which is quite long. But here's verse 7. It says, Then they shall take some of the blood, so kill that lamb that you've been with for the week, take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts, and then the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Take a bunch of hyssop, these herbs, these branches, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel on the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. Okay. So what we often miss here is uh, the lamb is likely killed by the door and the blood was to flow into the basin. And when we hear basin, we think of kind of like a bowl. But, but culturally speaking, these, these small homes would have had a, a, a trench or a little trough like dug right at the door, right, to keep, to keep the water out. And this was called the basin, the basin of the home. So door at the threshold there was a little tiny little ditch or trough that would collect water so the, the home wouldn't get get flooded but and it's in this basin that the blood was then put so so visualize what's happening here animal killed door basin and then that blood is then put on the side post to the threshold and then put on the lintel the top so what do you have well, you have blood above, and you have blood below, and you have blood on the sides. You have literally a doorway made of blood. You have a doorway made of blood. And it's graphic. And it might, maybe it's, maybe it's a passage like this that's turned you off from the Bible. <laughs> and you read this and you go, what? Like, how? No. This is just dumb. Stick with me. Okay? Stick. Stick with me. Your first time at church in a long time, and we're talking about doors of blood. Awesome. Okay, hold on. Why does God command this? Because death will come through the land on the night of the Passover. Look at verse 12 through 13. 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Okay, that didn't make it easier. Um, all right, so, so death will come by every house, but those with blood on the doors, will death will not enter. Why? He says it, because it's a what? It's a sign for you. Okay, what kind of sign? Like a sign of like magical thinking? A sign of old-time superstition? A, a sign of gullibility? A sign of some way of thinking that's just sheer myth, a sign of low IQ of these people who would do such a thing? What kind of sign? Well, it's a sign of trust in God to be their only hope. It's a sign that God is their only savior from, from death. It's a sign that God is God, that Pharaoh is not. It's a sign that life and death are in God's hands. It's a sign that life comes through death. The blood is not some kind of magical spell type thing. It's a sign of trust in God. And when he says these strange words, even though it's strange to the finite human mind, trust in them leads to life in a country of death. And when the night of destruction comes, well, the death enters the homes of those who thought God's words were not to be trusted. Death comes to those who knew better than what God said. Death comes to those who put trust in all sorts of other gods. But no force of will, no political power, no, no strength exhibited by Pharaoh, no security force or military or hordes of bodyguards, no vault of riches, no palace vaults, no palace walls, no intellectual arguments, no philosophy, no religious rituals, no denial of the fact, no distraction on ancient Instagram could stave off the death. None of it. None of it could. Only a trust in these instructions of God and, and the blood's a sign. Well, so this, this thing happens, right? It happens and it's this terrible day of, of weeping. And then Pharaoh says, go, just Go, get out, get out. Death passed over, and now the Hebrews are a free people. And they're to leave this life of slavery, and they're to head to the promised land, centuries of being slaves. So it's over. They're free. So this is a key moment, right? This is a key moment in the history of Israel and the history of redemption. It's the, the, and it's a key moment in the arc of the story of redemption that God is writing from Genesis to Revelation that includes the salvation of the whole world. It's a key moment, a defining event to be remembered. It's why the Jews call this the Feast of Freedom. It's a feast to remember who they are, whose they are, what they are, and where they're going. So it's a defining event. So God says, remember this. Remember this. That's why he says here in verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Right, we're in this series on feasts, looking at how these feasts point us to Jesus. And, and this is commanded, this is to be kept every year. And then Leviticus 23, verse 4 through 5, 
says, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. In the first month of the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. So the very first month, the, the start of the new year, is this, this new life of, of redemption. And this is to be remembered every year. So the Jewish people often did, but they also often didn't remember this. There was times where it was lapsed, but then there was um, faithfulness and remembering. Now, this celebratory meal that occurs on Passover is called the, the Seder meal. Uh, that word, Seder, means a, a order or, or arrangement because this is a highly ordered kind of meal, right? It, it's actually about a 15-step meal, depending upon how you calculate it. It's a 14 or 15 steps, including candles and prayers, washing, Q&A, storytelling, eating, breaking of bread, four symbolic cups of wine, blessing, singing, and this whole thing, this, this tightly arranged flow of, of pregnant symbols to help people remember what God has done. Uh, by the way, uh, in March, uh, so the, the week before Easter, the Thurs not Thursday Easter week, but the Thursday before, uh, we are going to do uh, a full-on Seder meal here and work through it uh, bit by bit. And so uh, we're going to have some people come in and join us, uh, and it's going to be fantastic. So, so sign up for that because we won't go through all the details today. Uh, but this meal, this meal is meant to look backwards. To remember what God's done. It's meant to help us be present and thank God for the life that he's given. And this meal is also to look forward to what he will ultimately do in the coming uh, hero, the, the Messiah, the Savior. Now, on that, on that night, when this dish is before the people, before they really start getting into this kind of strange-looking meal, that's when that young voice rises and says, what's different about this night? Why is this night different than all the rest? And then those questions are asked. On all other nights, we eat leavened products and matzah. And on this night, only matzah or unleavened bread. Why? Well, it's to remember leaving Egypt. They were to leave swiftly. They had bread in bowls being, getting ready to be made, but they didn't have time for the leaven and for it to rise. So, so there is a swiftness. Like they're, they're going to leave that night. But it also has to do with purity. And we're going to see this next week when we get into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that, that leaven represents sin or corruption, and it's leaving sin and corruption behind. So the Father, the host, would say an answer, something like that. The ancient rabbi said that uh, a fundamental requirement for fulfilling the Passover obligation was to tell the story, moving through, moving from degradation to freedom, and that story is told right here in, in the matzah, which is broken and shared, leaving behind the degradation and moving into wholeness and flourishing. The next question would be this. On all other nights, we eat all vegetables, everything, right? Broccoli, cauliflower, all of it, carrots. But on this night, only bitter herbs. Why? Why the bitter stuff? Well, it's to remind us of the bitterness and the cruelty that we experienced in slavery. We will not forget where we came from. We will remember the hardships and suffering we went through. 
The next question. On all other nights, we don't dip our food even once. And on this night, we dip twice. Why? In, in the motions of this feast, there's two points where, where food is dipped. One of them is dipping into uh, salt water. And that has to do with the tears of slavery. The other one, this is, this is fascinating, is um, it's a dipping of the food into um, what's called kereset, uh, and, and that is uh, chopped up apples and spices. Uh, and it looked an awful lot like the, the clay that, the bricks, that made the bricks of their slavery, or the mortar by which they put the bricks together in order to make the monuments to Pharaoh. So it was a reminder, again, of the slavery that they were in. And yet there was a sweetness that came out of it because of the redemption. Again, it's apples and cinnamon, it's all these different spices all chopped up, and it was in a little bowl in that picture you just saw. Well, that brings us to this other question. On all other nights, we're sitting or reclining, but this night we, we only recline at the table. We're, we're like kicking back. Why is that? Yeah, yeah, it's because we're free. What do the slaves do with the dinner? They're standing, they're serving, they're moving. What do the free people do? They're relaxing, they're, they're eating. We kick back because we are free. God has freed us. Okay, so pause. That's, that's really fascinating, just historically. It's fascinating to think about this. But again, why is this not just a curiosity to us? Why is this something that, that should affect us and, and change us? This has everything to do with us here in Pleasanton. In 2024, this has everything to do with us. This has everything to do with Jesus. Because what the Passover is, is an object lesson about salvation. The Passover is an object lesson about salvation to get the truth about salvation into the bones of the people to last through the centuries until the Messiah would come and fulfill it perfectly to the T. Because the reality is no unblemished lamb could change the human heart and could affect salvation. No eating of bitter herbs or doing the meal just right could make everything just right. God had to come in the flesh. And so what Passover teaches us about the nature of salvation is that we all need it. Who is the plague coming to? Which houses? Jew and Gentile, everyone. So we all need it. We can't earn it. There was nothing anybody could do to stop it from coming. And God provides it. And he gives the instructions. Trust receives it. It's going, I don't fully understand the, how all this works, but God says to do this and live this way. And so I'm going to trust his word, even if it's costly and a bit strange to me. So we all need it. We can't earn it. God provides it, and trust or faith receives it. It's salvation through substitution. What does that mean? Well, one was going to die in that house, but they don't die because the lamb was killed and slaughtered in their place. So it is salvation through substitution. 
It's also mercy through judgment. There is judgment coming because it's not just the, the Egyptians that were, were sinful. It was, it was the Jewish people who had forsaken God over and over again and worshipped false gods and done all sorts of broken things. Hurt each other, selfish, sin sick, all of it. So, judgment's coming to everyone. But God provides mercy that comes through the judgment. And the mercy is this lamb, this Passover. And then it's life through death. Life comes about through death, and it's freedom from bondage. It's not just an escape to hatch from death. It's an escape from the bondage that is dehumanizing God's image bearers. So Passover is an object lesson about salvation. We all need it. We can't earn it. God provides it. Trust, faith receives it. It's salvation through substitution. It's mercy through judgment. It's life through death, and it's freedom from bondage. Well, this all points us to Jesus. And again, the essence of the sermon series is to show us how these seven plus one feasts, the, the Sabbath and these seven feasts, reveal who Jesus is and why we, why we need him. So by way of quick reminder, the feasts that God lays out in Leviticus... 23, our Sabbath, Passover, unleavened bread, which we'll do next week, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. And if you get to the heart of each one of those feasts, you get to these words that distill it. And those are rest, redemption, cleansing, and resurrection, and spirit, gathering, repentance, and, and presence. In other words, the story, the narrative that God is, is telling in this embodied way through, through food and, and instruments and the sacred nature of time and, and physical people coming together in a place to sing and to speak, what he's telling us is that Jesus has invited us into the joy of his rest, that Sabbath. How? By redemption from the slavery that we've all known. And then unleavened bread shows that he's cleansing us from sin and giving us resurrection life by his Holy Spirit, gathering for himself a people of repentance who will delight to live in God's holy presence. You can say that's a summation of the great drama of redemption. Now, I imagine by now some of these Passover pieces might be falling into place as we are linking them to Jesus or looking forward here to Jesus. So let's do this. Let's make these incredibly explicit. Let's take these odd pieces from the Old Testament and show how they fit just perfectly together without gap in the New Testament in the personal work of Jesus. So when, when Jesus shows up on the scene... So Old Testament, and then 400 years of silence, and then when Jesus shows up, what's the world like that the Jewish people are living in? Good, happy, fun, free time? What's it like? Bondage, oppression, under the iron fist of Rome. There is a, a new pharaoh that's on the throne. He's just not in Egypt, he's in Rome. So Jesus shows up on the scene, a man of two worlds, fully man and Fully God, the agent of redemption, who was, they attempted to kill 
as a baby, Herod tried, to, Herod tried to kill him, but then he escaped. Moses, right, attempted to kill him. And you see, you see the connections. Well, Jesus shows up, and, and when he does, um, he's walking by uh, the, the River Jordan, and John the Baptist, John the Baptist sees him. Do you remember that, that line that John the Baptist says about Jesus? It's in John chapter 1, verse 29. He says, behold, what? Behold, the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What is in John's mind when he says, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? The Messiah, the, the Passover Lamb, the temple sacrifices. Salvation through substitution. God's lamb. Not our lamb. God's, God's lamb. Okay? Three years later, after Jesus is, is moving through the land, primarily in Galilee, teaching like people have never heard teaching before, showing love and compassion that is just blowing the mental categories of, of the people, healing the sick, making the lame walk, raising the dead, opening eyes. This is going on for, for three years. Then what happens? Well, he comes to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He, then he teaches and he engages the leaders there, and then he is to be crucified. Now, what day does Jesus enter into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday? If you had to take a guess based on what we talked about in the month of Nisan, what day does Jesus enter into Jerusalem? The 10th of Nisan. What does Jesus do for four days? He teaches. And what are the religious leaders doing for four days? They are trying to catch him. They're trying to find some blemish in him. They're trying to find some kind of, of error. And they can't do it. Even Pilate, right, the, the Roman governor, he's like, I find no fault in him. In other words, he has been thoroughly examined throughout the week, and no fault can be found in him. And Pilate, a Gentile, says there's no blemish in the lamb. I can't find one, and neither can you. And then on the 14th of Nisan, Jesus is crucified. The lamb of God is brought into the household of the Jewish people on the tent. He's inspected. No fault is found. And then towards evening, twilight, that term in, in Hebrew means between evenings, uh, he is killed. He's slaughtered. And this is fascinating. The book of Mark tells us that the lambs were to be brought into the temple um, and they were to, uh, brought into the temple the third hour and they were to be slaughtered up until the ninth hour and then at the ninth hour. Now, what does, that, what does that mean? Why do I tell you that? <laughs> uh, Jesus was put on the cross at the third hour at 9 o'clock. And then what time does he die? Do you remember? Does anybody remember that one? 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Six hours that, that Friday. Six hours that Friday. This is fascinating. Um, so the, the Jewish people, they, they would constantly get, do these sacrifices in the temple, right? It was a bloody affair. There was two times a day when they were to slaughter the lambs. There was a morning sacrifice and there was an evening sacrifice. Can you guess the times? Nine in the morning was the sacrifice of the lambs. 
and then three in the afternoon was the sacrifice of the lambs. Jesus is put on the cross at nine in the morning while lambs are bleeding and being sacrificed in the temple, hangs there dying until three o'clock and then dies at the second round of the slaughtering of the lambs. Why was the system set up the way it was? Because God's arbitrary? Because God was doing everything he could to point to the reality that this Savior would come and do these things to give no excuse to those who would see and say, oh, oh my, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And this is where I just, friends, if you're skeptical of the Bible and of Jesus, you have to reckon with this. You could say Jesus manipulated certain things to, to play the Savior. How could he manipulate the time he was put on a cross and then died and calculate the time of his death? You just, you have to reckon with, with the divine design and orchestration over thousands of years that is put into 66 books that has changed the world, upended the Roman Empire, changed the ethical structure of the world, and is transforming people daily. You have to reckon with that. Think it through. Don't just go, ah, the Bible's a bunch of myths. If you say that, I just want to politely say to you, you haven't done your homework. Use the brain that God has so given you. You're good thinkers. Think and ask him to show and reveal the truth about this lamb. By the way, this is why Paul says explicitly in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul says Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the Passover lamb. And then we need to make this connection. This is what Jesus was teaching his apprentices at the Last Supper. The night before Jesus was crucified, he celebrated what was called the Last Supper. Jesus couldn't celebrate the Passover meal on Passover because he would be the lamb that slaughtered. So the night before, he gathers together and, and he hosts this meal and he's teaching them about what's about to happen and how he ultimately fulfills it. And so in there, he, he washes their, their feet. That's part of the washing ritual. He, he prays, he blesses, they drink the cups of wine. I mean, this is, this is a, a Seder meal. He's preparing them for what's going to happen the next day. And so... He takes the bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to the disciples. And he says, this is my body. Take and eat. And then the third cup of wine there, he, he says, drink, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, for the forgiveness of sins. So he, he's saying all these symbols, all these things that you guys have done for years and that God's people have done for years, all of this was intricately designed to lead us to the point to get us to effectual salvation because God has come in the flesh to die for your sins and bring you to the Father. So we see it now, right? The first Passover, the blood of the lamb to be painted on the wooden doorframe, right? Here's a little wooden doorframe, right? Painted on the wooden doorframe. Vertical strokes, horizontal strokes, pool of blood at the bottom. Vertical strokes, horizontal strokes, a pool of blood at the bottom. What is this? What, what, is, what is this motion? This is, this is the cross, right? Door frame, wood, blood, cross. Like God has so deeply embedded the reality of Jesus and salvation into the wood and, and blood and the stone of history. There's no excuse. 
He is the Lamb. So what does this mean for us? Um, What does this change for us? First, just three quick reflections, and then we'll close. First is this. Hope shapes our daily lives. If this is true, then hope shapes our daily lives. We are free from despair. And what I mean by this is simply that God has orchestrated the fine details of history to fulfill his great promises. Or you could say it this way, God has taken these really bizarre pieces that, that seem absurd or weird or gross, and he turns them into the beauty of redemption, which means there isn't a weird, oddly fragmented piece of your life that he can't take and fit into something glorious and write it into a story of redemption. So, so whether it's a broken uh, marital relationship or, or uh, some deep trauma that's embedded in your nervous system or something funky going on with some, some friends or, or at work or just something so bizarre, you don't even have words to explain it. God can take these odd pieces and put them into a story of redemption because he wins. So despair doesn't have to rule. We're free from despair, and it should shape how we live our daily lives. Second is death is dethroned. We're free from fear. We don't have to fear death. And it's the fear of death that causes so many other fears and causes us to do so many weird things to try to prove ourselves or try to leave a, a legacy or to try to show power over other people or power over death. We can be honest, yeah, we're going to die physically, but we will live eternally and have a new body someday. And so death doesn't have to rule and shape our lives. Death is, for the Christian, a change of clothes under glory. It's not the executioner, it's the gardener, which brings about the fruit of who we truly are. And then thirdly, we are not slaves to sin. We are free to love like Jesus. We are free to love like Jesus. We're not bound by those old addictions. And the old bent nature of our soul. We're free to love like Jesus. This is why Paul says in Romans, he says, says this, he says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctific- sanctification, cleansing, being like Jesus, and its end, which is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So friends, as we move forward in the series looking at these feasts, these again aren't just historic curiosities. These are the the answers to the longing and aches of our soul because Jesus has invited us into his rest by redemption from slavery, cleansing from sin, and giving resurrection life by his spirit because he is gathering for himself a people of repentance who delight to live in God's holy presence. Pesach the spreading of wings to cover and protect. That's Jesus. He spread his wings to cover and protect. I'll close with this, the precious words of Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 12. These words ring and reverberate throughout the heavens. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
May it be so. Lord Jesus, would you receive all the praise and adoration for who you are and what you have done, slain before the foundations of the world, the great plan all along. You have come, you have saved, you have redeemed, you have restored, and you are conforming us into your image. To you be the praise and the glory. Amen.